committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, oh, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Charlie Samuels. Uh, Hi. How you doing, Tom? So good. So good to have you here. The film is called Virgin Blacktop, A New York Skate Odyssey, which is uh, a great title. One, when when you reached out to me, I was just like, this is the kind of film I want to see. Thank you. And it's, uh, it's... it's described as life, death, and, death, and brotherhood, and something even more important, skateboarding, which is uh, a subculture that I am endlessly fascinated by. I always wanted to try and participate in, but unfortunately never had like the balance. But I hung out with a lot of people who were involved in the skate community. Um, You're welcome. You're welcome yeah. to come in. <laughs> come we're, we're, we're not exclusive. No. So. I, I, I do want to ask, do you, do you skate still yourself? Are yeah. you still skating around? Yeah. How is the subculture changed now in, in 2019? How do you see it? Um, I think it's matured a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I first started skating, you know, the outside mainstream society looked at it like with not really suspicion, but like curiosity. Mm-hmm. Now they're, they know more about it. They know that there's skateboarders as politicians and mm-hmm. corporations, you know, architects and everything. And, you know, we're, we've grown up a bit and we've, I think we've earned a bit more respect uh, that we actually had in the seventies. Um, we were mostly, um, I don't know how to describe it, but, uh, in the 70s, that was before you even named tricks, you know? Yeah. It, it just was such an early sport that people just didn't know what to make of it in mm. some ways. You know, that if you didn't skate, you just, people didn't know. So it was really un, kind of underground, and then it got really big, really Absolutely. fast. Absolutely. Let's jump into your upbringing and uh, getting into skateboarding yourself. So mm-hmm. uh, where'd you grow up, and how did you get into the skate scene? I grew up in Spark Hill. If you see the film, I, I kind of explain yeah. it. But uh, I grew up in Spark Hill, New York, right across the street from a cemetery. I couldn't see any structure, even if I stood on my roof, except the Empire State Building. And so I was an only child as well. And so I, would, I, I discovered this magical rolling board called the skateboard. And I would skate by myself in the cemetery. And... I just I was fascinated by it. You know, I remember laying my cheek down on the roadway and watching the ball bearings replace each other on the wheels. And so I um but I didn't know that anybody else really did it. You know, I I I'd see it in the newspapers and stuff and then I discovered that there were kids in the adjacent towns on the Hudson River that did it. Mm-hmm. And so I I made a beeline to those areas, you know. Get and I found some yeah. kids. Yeah, it's it's an interesting way that skateboarding has taken uh, this sh- this shot into the mainstream. As you mentioned, it started out as really a very small underground subculture, but as it's become more popular for me, uh, being quite a bit younger, the the peak was really in the two thousands. At least the way I saw it was, mm-hmm. you had like Tony Hawk was all of a sudden a video game star, and like people really wanted to be part of it. It was super commercialized. 
Mm-hmm. Um, did that did that ever bother you being there from the the very beginning to seeing it become more of a commercial product? Uh, it never bothered me. I mean, skateboarding always has a double edged sword. There's you know. The commercialism is kind of, you know, when Walmart got a hold of skateboardings and stuff, skateboards and tried to sell these bad boards. And, you know, that um, that was disappointing. But you need a little bit of commercialism to let the rest of the world know what a what a wonderful culture it is, you know. And and it's nice to be underground in other ways where you feel like you're the only one you know doing it and sure. we're the only ones we're the only ones in the know and it's a difficult sport to master so um but it's getting more and more popular now yeah it's in a good place i think i think it really is it's got its place in culture where it is uh both recognized yet somewhat still separate in a in a, mm-hmm. in a healthy way in a way that people can have this as being their thing right. and uh I, I think it's a great place to be so uh you are a both an award-winning director and a photographer you started out shooting for thrasher which mm-hmm. is a legendary legendary print publication not just within the skateboarding community but outside of it people generally recognize this as as a uh, magazine that captures culture in a specific way and photography is really integral to skateboarding that recording of the of tricks of different accomplishments by skateboarders Uh, when you approach shooting skaters uh did you have a particular way that you wanted to capture them in motion or how did you want to uh explore the subculture of skateboarding through photography well i i mainly wanted to shoot it in a different way because i was building my portfolio and and you know to be a photographer i was an assistant shooting you know shooting stuff to build up my book so i could not be an assistant anymore right um i assisted about a hundred and over a hundred different photographers in five years and um I just wanted to shoot my friends and I discovered that I like shooting outside. I skateboard myself so I could skate around the city with, you know, that where that's where I lived in New York City. Um and be able to skate them and I I just tried to do what was not in the magazines, you know, something just progress the uh the art or the craft of photography a little bit more and also highlight and glorify these incredible athletes yeah. and so um i think that's important athletes is really the important way to to describe them because what they're doing is what what you as a skateboarder can do and what any skateboarder can do really even at the most basic level like astounds me like it takes <laughs> it takes an immense amount of skill and practice oh it astounds me too you know it's 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 incredible i don't know how they can get much higher you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's like you once you get to levels like the x games where people are doing just insane feats of the human body and and uh being able to take video and photograph that you're you're capturing uh like i said insane feats of the human body does it still keep you in awe all these years later uh, absolutely. I mean, I just, like I said, I, it's hard to imagine it getting even more amazing. You know, it's, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's really exciting because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I see people ollieing over two story houses, you know, yeah. it's just basically unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, not literally, but yeah. it's, it's close to that. And, uh, 
you know, where we came from, you know, was freestyle skating, you know, very pure form of skating, you know, skating on flat ground. And yeah. So it was someone inspired tricks. by like surfing, that sort of idea, oh, yeah. which had already was part of the consciousness, but this was almost surfing on concrete. Right. Right. Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the, the legendary movie Dogtown by Stacey Peralta described that perfectly. And, uh, you know, that's what you did when the waves were flat and it, 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 you know, they, that area of Southern California did start a revolution, you know, Absolutely. in this culture slash sport slash lifestyle slash art. You know, that's really, so it's, I think that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. With the, with California's skate culture, it, it often draws a lot of the, uh, a lot of the eyes because it calls to that certain, be- those certain beginnings of, uh, skating and it's sunny and that seventies feel. Uh, but New York, it's kind of a different vibe. You guys are dealing with a lot more of a concrete jungle in a certain way. And you get to work with a lot of infrastructure that is just around that you can mold into, uh, a different world of skateboarding possibilities. So being part of that scene from an early time uh how did you see it as different or how did it develop differently from what was happening out in california well well, first of all it was very difficult for us to understand how the californians were doing it because all we had was a bi-monthly magazine called skateboarder magazine where Mm -hmm. we saw photos of the highlight of the trick and so we didn't know how they got there (laughs) you know, it was we, we were struggling to find out we just thought of them as literally like gods like we can't possibly do that you know yeah. and uh but we we got into downhill and slalom and freestyle and then we started getting into pools you know and skating in pools and then the parks started being built and we skated in you know wooden parks and some cement parks and we started to get a little bit of the hang of it mm-hmm. and it was really exciting and uh, your film Virgin Blacktop captures is is such a snapshot of uh, this world and a really and a really interesting one at that. Obviously, it's beautifully photographed uh, from that angle, but the stories it tells uh, is really fascinating. What made you want to compile all this knowledge you have and all this and this and this immense love and appreciation of the skateboarding world into a film? Well. Like you were talking about, I was a, I was a working, you know, I am a working still photographer. Mm-hmm. And so I saw film and I was always with still photography, you know, trying to inject motion or the illusion of motion into one shot or photo mm-hmm. essay. And uh, I remember actually trying to beg Thrasher to take like one fortieth of the page and make a flip book. You know, on in Thrasher, <laughs> and Kevin Thatcher's like, nah, the, yeah, the not advertisers gonna not gonna not gonna buy that. And I said, uh, well, anyway, so um, I, you know, film has motion built into it, right? So it was a natural progression for me. And then when my skateboard team, the Wizards, who are in the movie and profiled right. in the movie, uh, came in Virgin Blacktop, I should say that. Um, that we had a reunion in 1994 and I couldn't help but shoot it you know because there was just so much crazy energy you know sure. and we built a ramp in our apartment and you know it was it was out of control as you can imagine and uh and I didn't at the time I had a uh uh, uh 
like a TV show on Manhattan Cable Network, which was like a cable access documentary TV show. It's not like it was. And so I thought it might make a good 25-minute kind of thing Mm -hmm. to have them and then interview them and, you know, just sort of talk about it while this crazy party's going on in the background. And then I found an unbelievable trove of Super 8 footage shot by five different people. And then I realized also that the characters that I grew up with are really interesting people. And so I said, this has got to go beyond a 25-minute cable access TV show. Yeah. And I got to make it into a feature documentary. We got to stretch it. We got to. Yeah. It, well, it's not even stretching because it's just all there. I know. It's, I love that finding the Super 8 footage because one thing I really love about uh, skateboarding, both photography and video, is that the people who are shooting it are always moving forward with different technology and they're, they're trying out new things, but at the same time, not afraid to try out classic techniques. I, I know some people in Chicago that do shoot on super eight because it has a certain quality and they feel that it captures the motion, uh, really well in a different way. Yeah. Too, a totally different you know, way. You, you haven't, I don't think electronics has caught up to, to being able to really mimic film mm-hmm. uh, accurately. I, as, in fact, I know it hasn't. And uh, I still shoot regular 8, Super 8, and uh, I shot it throughout this film, even after I found that incredible Holy get Grail trope. <laughs> You're just like, I need more. I need, yeah, I, yeah. Need, I loved it, you know? And uh, when, you know, the best time in your life happens to be, you know, documented on super eight film you got to make a film about it <laughs> you have to use it and uh I, I love the quality of film i love the way that it looks i love the uh it's got even even when you're shooting new stuff on super eight it already feels like it happened in the past it already yeah. feels uh, this nostalgic quality of it w- were there any problems procuring some of the super eight film i know it's still out there i know it's still it's it's still possible to shoot on super eight but it has how expensive has it gotten now that well, digital the, is more the mode the most disappointing thing is that Kodachrome, you can't shoot Kodachrome anymore and that was more forgiving and it was you know archival but there is still there's I'm in touch with all the Super 8 underground and yeah. I can get film you know <laughs> any film but Kodachrome and uh, you know I shot that film throughout the 25 years of me making Virgin Blacktop mm-hmm. so this film is really uh, uh, stretches 50 years from when uh, we first started skating till now, or almost now. So it's a, you know, we met and ushered ourselves through adolescence when we were competing and giving demonstrations and being the wizard skateboard team. Sure. And then uh, I followed them throughout their lives, basically, and, and, and searched for this old, this old footage and more old pictures. Mm-hmm. So it's a culmination of that. Like Jim Morrison used to say, uh, he had a saying about, you know films it's just life speeded up yeah that's exactly what we got here yeah i i think that's really true that come that comes through a lot and what really grabbed me was um like you said it can it captures such a long period of time which can be strange for someone myself who i you know i'm 25 years old you know mm-hmm. i i barely have gotten started i feel like but watching it that i felt this genuine sense of uh reflection and uh really diving deep into the stories of people's lives was it strange for you to go back and realize hey this is 
so much of my life and so much of other people's lives now on film mm-hmm. just kind of committed to the committed to that forever well it was deeply personal for me and for the you know i i guess i schooled myself in being an interviewer on this film and in, in the past documentaries i did but uh yeah it was um you know uh i i can't answer this question without talking about you know one of the members of our team had a terminal illness and i visited him on his hospital bed and it was one of those photojournalistic moments where i said should i be doing this you know like is this disrespectful would michael whoops i shouldn't say the word but uh would he be upset and i just said you know what if i do this i have the choice and i don't you know, so I just did it, and it felt right when I was doing it, and it felt right afterwards. So I put it in the film. Yeah, that can, that was a really tough thing, I, I imagine. Mm. Um, because I can't, I can't like, I have to get out of the theater when I when I watch it. Yeah, you know, if I can't watch it anymore. Uh, yeah, I I can understand that. I can definitely understand that. But working as someone who has worked with images, uh, you know, through so much of your life. Um, I, I always like to ask, what's what's next for that world of, of images? I mean, the, as film progresses and photography progresses so much, um, where do you want to go next with it? Well, I, I'm going to shorts right now mm-hmm. because this took so long. That yeah, you're just like, <laughs> I, yeah. I need to do something a little bit more compact. Palpable, yeah, exactly. And um, I also think that... Um, you know, the, the, the virtual reality and some other things are pretty exciting. They haven't really taken hold yet. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, virtual reality, when you put those things on and somebody's made a quality film for you there, uh, it is like being in a lucid dream. It's yeah. a whole nother world. It kicks in something. So that's where I see it going. Um, and I see, you know... You know, conventional theaters still being around, but sure. I think the series series uh, format is is probably the most immediate future that's that's mm-hmm. going to be uh, the most financially viable. Yeah, absolutely. So, with your with your long career, you you shot for not just Thrasher, but also Sports Illustrated, Time, mm-hmm. uh, Vogue, the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there a particular assignment out of those that you thought was uh, a favorite or a particular publication that other than thrasher that you found to be uh capture you know wanting to capture the skating subculture correctly um well you know i started out as a skateboard photographer shooting for right. thrasher and trans world and you know being known as a action sports photographer mm-hmm. and um those were really great i mean you know photo essays in new york city running around with harold hunter and and joe humaris and you know that just a bunch of people i'm still in touch with you know and this was before you know new york was like a playground then you know yeah, it was it kind was, of the all or nothing days <laughs> yeah like. and so those were the most enjoyable skateboard ones i think yeah. were those beginning ones but i had a lot of photo essays after that in those pu- publications you you um you mentioned that are also extreme sports or whatever mm-hmm. extreme sports um <laughs> so, i hate that expression I, it's a, it's a, it's, it feels kind of like uh like a marketing name yeah when it's yeah. really just call the thing it's skateboarding or snowboarding whatever right. it's so many different it's, sports yeah, extreme exactly. <laughs> it's so all, sport. all of those photo essays for other publications were just as enjoyable mm-hmm. you know um 
but you know skateboarding is uh where my heart is in a sense you know that's probably you know i I, uh, I just love it. And you're feeling happy about it in 2019. It's in a good place. Oh, yeah, I think so. The, the big if is, you know, the Olympics are coming up and uh, skateboarding's officially in it. So yes. skateboarding's officially not a crime anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that is something that I always hated was it's like, why are we treating this? It's it's such a a simple activity. Mm-hmm. And yet it's so associated with like. De- like uh, degenerates or something like that. No, but no skateboarder I've ever met has ever been really a bad person. <laughs> they might get into some mischief, but uh, that's because most of the time this is when they were kids or teenagers. I think anybody who's of a certain age kind of gets into a little bit of trouble. And there is a certain level of kind of uh, not, not anti-society because it's not that, uh, but there's kind of like messing with people a little bit and messing with the rules, sure. which I think is a good thing. It's a healthy to have people out there who want to question mm-hmm. like how they do things and skateboarding is it kind of provides that I feel. Well, skateboarders, um, I think naturally have a bit of rebelliousness in them. And if yeah. they say, if somebody tells them, you know, because they're, you know, maybe they discovered it in their rebellious stage in life or whatever. But if somebody says you can't do something, all skateboarders, I think, are are into challenges. So if you say you can't do something, it makes me want to do it. Yeah, you know. And, and their greatest their greatest challenge is gravity. They're you're right. Like, how can we defy literal physical laws? And they do it. They I know. It. I know. And uh, so that can be a problem too. You know, there have been some embarrassing moments in our culture. You know, mm-hmm. um, and um, but uh, this for the most part. You know, skateboarders don't deserve their bad reputation. I agree. Uh, I agree. They are uh, very inclusive and accepting, and uh, most of them enter the arts, you know, which is challenging, mm-hmm. and it's visual. Um, I mean, in my experience, most of them enter the arts. Yeah. So, where where is where is Virgin Blacktop going to go next? What's your hope for this film past the Adirondack Film okay. Festival? Uh, well, I'm really excited to announce that I'm in contract talks with a very reputable distributor. So it will be downloadable very soon. But um, uh, there's one more out of all the 50 or so seemingly insurmountable barriers that I've crossed to make this film. There's one more. And oh, yeah. we need funding for the remaining music, which is only three songs. Right. But uh, once that's cleared, we're off to the races, and I'll be letting everybody I know that it it is available for download, spectacular, either iTunes or Netflix or something like that. You know, yeah. And I I hope it gets to join. I feel like over the last couple of years, there's been there's uh, an explosion of the subgenre of like skate cinema. There's been quite a few movies oh, coming yeah. out that that deal with the subculture. You've got Jonah Hill doing mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got uh, there was a film I saw called Skate Kitchen that was really fun to watch and mm-hmm. just capturing the the whole community. So hopefully Virgin Blacktop will get out to the people because there's clearly a want and there's a there's a hunger to for people to engage with us again and maybe remind themselves of what they used to do when they were kids or even for the c- people who are currently entrenched in the subculture right. to feel more and more part of it, see themselves represented on screen, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, um, I'm so glad that those films have done really well. And, uh, 
you know, I, I want the mainstream media and the mainstream people, you know, the rest of society to see our culture because I think they can learn learn a thing or two from uh, us. You know? Absolutely. So always something like, Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Sure. Uh, the film is Virgin Blacktop, and it's a really spectacular, it's really spectacular look at skating subculture. Again, beautifully shot because you are a professional. And uh, if, you're a fan, if you're even just a fan of Super 8 film and things being shot on film and uh, are a geek about that thing, you're going to want to watch Virgin Blacktop. Uh, keep your eyes out for it. Hopefully on available for download soon and cool. uh, digitally, all that kind of stuff. And can I give a plug for my gram, the gram? Please Instagram. do. Yeah, please. Uh, I'm on, you know, Virgin Blacktop is on Instagram as Virgin Blacktop underscore film. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the best way to follow it. All right. Thank you again, Charlie. Really appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, you are the uh, writer director yeah, of writer, Signal, director. writer director of Signal to Noise, which played as part of this kind of dramedy block here at the Adirondack Film Festival. Uh, and please it, it, feel free to correct me at any point when I'm describing this. It is a mockumentary about uh, a sort of cult that is obsessed with crystals in the sun is that is that roughly it yeah basically they had you know they just sort of have uh, it was sort of loosely inspired by do you remember the heaven's gate cult in, yes um i think it was heaven's gate they they saw this comet in the sky and they were uh-huh. convinced that this alien spacecraft was coming to um to 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 send them all to a higher plane of existence. So it's loosely based on that, this idea that, um, you know, these people kind of buy into this story. And, you know, with the Heavens, I think it was called Heaven's Gate, with the Heaven's Gate thing, what was interesting is there were a couple people in the cult who actually went out and bought a telescope to go to try to look at the comet and see the spaceship. Mm-hmm. And they looked up in the sky with this telescope and they didn't see the spaceship. And they went to the cult leader like, I don't I don't see, well, there, there doesn't, and they're like, Where's well, the it's not powerful enough. You know, that that, that, that telescope scope wasn't powerful enough so it was sort of loosely inspired by this you know you buy into the story and then despite the evidence of your own eyes and, and and you just sort of go along with it you know you know completely over the cliff even you know to the point so that's sort of what it was based on um so yeah it's a cult they're you know trying to ascend planning to ascend to a higher plane of existence and there's one woman in the group who's starting to say to herself this doesn't really actually make sense yeah absolutely so you are from chicago yes uh i live in rogers park which is is that where you are too uh, i was in rogers park I, and i actually so you know the new 400 theater uh-huh. uh i used to work there my house yeah, yeah yeah i used to work i worked there for about two and a half years mm-hmm. uh it was a great place to see a lot of movies oh, and yeah, meet a lot awesome. of people but uh so how how'd you get involved with adirondack because coming to even coming here myself when jess Lewandowski reached out she was just like hey do you want to come to this film festival i'm just like I don't know how to pronounce this word, and where is this? I was really confused. Right, and that's sort of how I ended up. I uh, had a short hair. 
I guess it was last year called Locker Room Talk, and it played at the Midwest Independent Film Festival. And at that festival, Jess was there, and she handed me her card and said, I love this film. I'd love to bring it to my festival in upstate New York. And I said, sure. Um, so uh, so I also had never you know, been to this area or been to this festival. And it's amazing, isn't it? It's yeah. just, I mean, it's beautiful. If you've never been here, it's like walking through the Gilmore Girls town. Like, Oh, oh my God, that is just, exactly it. It's just beautiful and you know picturesque and they even have a gazebo in the middle of the town square and it's in october and it's just autumnal glory like beautiful leaves and perfect little crisp in the air and everyone here is just so friendly and welcoming i mean it's just an amazing amazing festival i had a great time last year i'm back this year it's just a fantastic place to be in october so um, and I really, I will say I was also a little spoiled because uh, it was one of the first festivals I'd been to. I'd only been to a couple before I went to this one, and it sort of spoiled me for every other mm-hmm. place I've been. Like, it's like, oh, well, they don't do it like Adirondack does. Yeah, because <laughs> um, even right now back in Chicago, the Chicago International Film Festival is happening, and folks are saying, oh, are you, are you sad you're missing out? I'm like, I'm not sure I'm missing out at all, no. actually, because I get to be in this small community where... These the films that I've gotten to see, including yours, uh, have just been so top quality. Yeah, they're great. And while uh, Chicago International Film Festival might have some bigger names attached to it, there might be some more premieres and things like that. I don't know. This seems like the kind of place I'd want to be for a film festival yeah. so that I can enjoy both the town and the films. And I mean, at the screening that I went to yesterday, that Signal to Noise was part of, it was pretty much a full house yeah. like of just people who want to watch short films. Right. It's not. That's one. Of the really nice things about this festival is not just filmmakers just all showing their films to each other. They're, the local community really comes out for it. Um, I had I went to a party last night and the um, some of the pass holders are invited to the party, so you just go sit and chat with audience members. Mm-hmm. And there isn't this sort of. Um, it's interesting. They don't really do Q and As before the and after the film. What they do is they just have the filmmakers all kind of come up so everybody can see their faces, and then you're just encouraged because the community's small and because you're not competing with a you know a giant city where everybody can disappear you know we're all here for this few days so you can just sort of go up to somebody hey i saw your film let's talk about it it, it yeah. makes it very um it it really there's really not this sort of wall between i guess the filmmakers and the audience members where you which you get at some festivals where you know we're on one side of the q a line and you know somebody sure. else is on the other so it makes it very friendly and uh, just a great great place to spend a weekend so i, yeah. I love it I'm it's really incredibly personal and very a very personal mm-hmm. film festival so signal to noise you mentioned that uh some of the inspiration for this came from the heaven's gate uh cult and this is a movie that balances a lot of that happy sad feeling um when i first started watching it, i was like i had no idea where this was gonna go uh obviously they've got these cult members all decked out in red because it uh increases their like their their vibe or like their their connection to the sun and the crystals in it and i was like ah maybe this is going to be a comedic riff on the on the cult thing and how ridiculous it is but it it starts to turn pretty quickly how did you balance that tone how did you want to balance that tone um well it's it actually uh, kind of came from. I mean, part part of the the sort of tone of it kind of came from. I mean, it's it's about cult members. It's also kind of about <laughs> um, uh, Trump voters. I mean, it's hey, you know. it's it's. It, I mean, interesting. It, it kind of also that mix of tone comes from the last couple of years, just kind of watching the political environment in this country and on the and watching this our kind of 
just bonkers president and people sort of following him further and further down this really dark path and that and and you know when he first came on the scene everybody laughed him off as hey, this guy's ridiculous he's not going to get elected nobody's going to listen to him nobody's mm-hmm. going to follow him and then it got less it's gotten less and less funny <laughs> right. um it it's gotten darker and darker and darker and and so that is sort of the arc that i think the um the film takes a little bit is this you know you sort of meet these people and you sort of it, they're immediately dismissive because they're just bonkers and they're just and they're and the and the leader is saying things that are you know to, kind of nuts and um but but then you know people just you know it's interesting once you decide to trust somebody or once you decide to sort of invest in somebody emotionally or politically or uh, interpersonally you know you it's sort of like you you start playing this you start literally investing in some of yourself in them and then you need them to be real right because you've invested some and then the more and the more they sort of pull you along the more you you sort of invest and then you can't it's harder and harder to get out because you've gotten more and more invested right once you just once you decide to trust somebody there's it's really hard to untrust them it's really hard to pull back because doing that you've put too much into it sure no i i I totally get that and it comes through very very well in the film especially with the two female characters they are kind of representative of that of that issue where you have started to put your faith in this person and then the cognitive dissonance begins and you've got one character who is really starting to feel uncertain Mm -hmm. really starting to pull back wants to see for herself you've got a scene where she pulls a a big this giant pair of binoculars trying to see the crystals in the sun Mm -hmm. and she doesn't see them but her friend has the opposite where she has to kind of fix the problem in her head and make excuses and do all this sort of mental gymnastics just to feel comfortable and feel like I've made this choice. It's too late to go back. I have to go down this road, which as many uh, cults of the, of the 20th century ends in death. Mm -hmm. Um, The two, the two men who are ostensibly leading this cult are just so gung ho. They're like, Nope, this is it. We're, Mm -hmm. we're doing this. I am so sure. Uh, Do you think that you wanted to cook in a little bit of those gender politics within to the film? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a woman, and so they always come out, no matter what, uh, you know, in your stories. You know, it's funny, you think you think the films you make and the stories you tell, it's not really about me, but inevitably, they're always sort of through your lens and mm-hmm. from your worldview. But yes, definitely, I think there is um, there is a power dynamic that goes, that is going on there, and I mean, the other sort of piece that sort of played into this film, and I, I don't want to get too far into it on the podcast because it kind of came from an experience with our family where sure. there was um, a cousin, a sort of distant family member who got involved with a guy who was essentially abusive and um, controlling and domineering and had and had sort of systematically isolated her from the rest of the family, controlling her communications. And... Again, it happened slowly over a long period of time, and and so when once the once the family sort of all finally really really looked into what was happening and realized like literally the guy wasn't who he said he was he was a fake identity and all this stuff that um, trying to intervene with this cousin. It, she just couldn't see it, right? She couldn't. Mm-hmm. She'd gotten so immersed in this person's world that she couldn't. See, it was when you tried to when you tried to sort of say, "Hey, he's he's not, 
he's not protecting you the way he's supposed to. He's not who he says he is. He's he's taking advantage of you. She would justify and make excuses, and you know it. And so, and and it ended with her literally fleeing for her life. Like you know, it, but it wasn't until um, it took a long time to get to that point. Um, and so, uh, and I guess I say all this to say that you know a lot of that you know, plays into the sort of gender dynamic dynamics of power and the ability to sort of, um, the, you know, the ability to sort of, uh, domineer somebody and, uh, and, you know, and who, who gets believed and who doesn't and who has credibility and who doesn't and who has authority and whose stories do we listen to, uh, when they say they're true. Um, and, so much of who gets authority is just based on who we trust, and so much of who we trust is based on uh, sort of cultural uh, power that kind of gets ingrained structurally. And so it's really hard to disentangle all that. So that's yeah. a really long explanation well, for that, but there you go. Well, there's a, there's a lot of layers to this film, and it's something, it really is something to behold. I really love short form because it forces you to fill in a lot of uh, gaps because a short film has only so much time to tell its story. And so there's a lot of trust in the audience to just accept the scenario at play. Mm-hmm. And... I feel like Signal to Noise was really great at that, just kind of like outright presenting, you know, this is this is these type of people. This is kind of a cult thing. I picked up on that immediately. I didn't need the explanation because it was so apparent in um, the way it was being shot and and also the the design of the costumes. Mm -hmm. Everybody's wearing matching red. I'm just like, okay, clearly these people are all together. They're doing something. Uh, I loved what the leader was wearing with like the uh, the antenna on his yeah, head. Yeah, that was really fun to build. I mean, yeah. that, so the film was, I did it this past summer. I was in Los Angeles last summer for a class and um, so summer before this past mm-hmm. one for a class and it was a little like um, one of those wilderness survival exercises where they drop you into the woods with a bowie knife and a flint and say, go make a movie. That was essentially it. They took oh, 12 wow. of us and they dropped us in LA like, go make a film for this class <laughs> and in 10 weeks with, you know, 12 people. Um, so the the cult leader has this just kind of crazy helmet sort of to to radio antenna helmet and I had a great time at Home Depot just you know myself going through and it's like a bike helmet spray painted with like a bunch of kitchen gadgets sort of screwed into it it was, it was yeah the costume design was all done by me because you know because well, we you were you were working on a kind of this guerrilla yeah, filmmaking thing yeah it was thing. totally insane it was I mean it's just the film is just sort of a miracle that it, exi- it exists because yes we had no I mean I'm a student at DePaul and even at DePaul student filmmaking is never easy but at least at DePaul we have you know you have this giant um, population of students to be on your crew and you have all the connections in town and so this was a lot of um, you know just kind of being in the Los Angeles jungle and trying to you know just sort of scavenged together these little pieces yeah. um so it was it was a lot of fun to to put together yeah and and that kind of filmmaking can be really interesting and really uh conducive to the creative environment mm-hmm. f- forcing you to just make decisions and just say all right we're gonna we're gonna do it this way and we're gonna move forward uh and when you've got that limited amount of time you can just go with whatever is instinctual and it can it can really draw out some some deep psyche things yeah and you have to and 
and it's interesting because filmmaking like that, when you when you start to have some parameters around you, I actually sometimes find it easier because you know because of the limitations we had. We I, I started to make creative choices based on those limitations, right? So mm-hmm. I don't really have any money or really any crews, so I decided to do a mockumentary or a docu because you know I don't need a lot of lighting, I don't need a, a set, I don't you know I, I want to do something outside, so I wouldn't need a lot of you know a lot of gear. Mm-hmm. Um, so you start to make, and then you think, all right, what is it about? And then, you know, what could the mockumentary? I was like, well, cults last day on earth, and who are they? So you start to make choices based on your constraints. And then uh, one thing that's been, I mean, I come from a playwriting background, and so it's having that, that writing um, background really helps because, you know, you can sort of look at your constraints, and then you can sort of write the script to mm-hmm. to fit in the, the sort of box of what you've got and uh, and make the most of it. And that um, and so, yeah, sometimes really interesting things come out out of that because you don't you're not sort of um you're not just looking at this world of options right which just can be overwhelming and then you end up paralyzed and not going anywhere like okay oh, i have to fit in this particular set, mm-hmm. set of limitations so it actually i think sometimes some of the most interesting work i think comes out of those those limitations yeah well and uh being a student at depaul and that is a very much up-and-coming film school oh, many amazing. so much of the stuff that i've seen coming out of it has been really top-notch mm-hmm. so uh do you think that this with depaul becoming a a, a bit of a hot spot for writers directors what have you is that going to keep elevating chicago on the on the film stage i hope so i mean actually i think the thing that will really that, that chicago really offers um and i don't think it, I think people are starting to realize it, um, but they haven't quite done it. They're, they're not quite there yet. But Chicago is this amazing theater community, and um, we have all we have a ton of amazing writers here we, in Chicago. We have a ton of amazing actors. We have some filmmakers, um, but they haven't all quite intersected yet. And as yeah. soon as they all find each other, I think amazing things are going to happen. Yeah. Because what we don't have is the money. We don't have the production infrastructure. Right. But I will say filmmaking is getting cheap enough that that's mattering less and less. And because we have so much theater in Chicago, the one thing playwrights are great at, and the one thing theater is really good at, is doing small cast stories in limited locations um, that are dramatically interesting, right? Sure. That's what plays are. You can't have a cast of 100 people. You can't have 20 million different locations in a play. So there are all these plays. There's all this great work that's getting written in Chicago and gets, you know, from all these playwrights that someday some filmmakers are, oh, they, you know, it's already starting to happen. I know of one friend who's, who's, done, who's already planning to do that already. She saw a great play in Chicago, small cast, and she's like, oh, I can do this as a micro-budget feature because totally. it's so, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, group of people sitting you know dramatically interesting characters not a lot of uh you know no spaceships or things like that and i I can do an amazing story so i think that that will i think sort of as as soon as everybody really starts to you know once these two communities really come together i I think really cool things are going to happen. An explosion. It's going to be an explosion. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Penny Penniston, direct writer, director of Signal to Noise, and a Chicagoan from Rogers Park, my favorite neighborhood. Yeah, personally. it's awesome. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to Thanks. sit down. A great job on the short. Oh, I really, you. really enjoyed it's it. Nice. It's nice of you to come here and be here. This is really neat.
right now sitting down with A.B. Seidel, who uh, wrote and directed, and did, it, based on the credits, uh, did many things on a sci-fi short that I found to be uh, incredibly interesting and terrifying and something that uh, I'm going to be thinking about for the next few hours. Uh, it's called Some of Her Parts, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about the inspiration behind it, talk a little bit about the making of this film and also screening it here at the Adirondack Film Festival in Glens Falls, New York. Uh, A.B., thanks for joining me, man. Thank you for having me, and thank you for watching the film. You know, sometimes when you do these things, you never know if the interviewer actually watched, <laughs> so it's nice to know that you, uh, you've you seen the film. Yeah, I mean, it's it's covering film festivals is always a difficult thing because I want to talk to everybody and I want to see everybody's films, but it's just so all over the place. Um, how many film festivals have you gotten to show some of her parts at? Um, so we're at the tail end of our run here. Uh, we've been on the festival circuit for a little over a year now. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, and we have played about 10 festivals, um, mostly local to the East Coast region, but we've also played San Francisco. We were lucky enough to play um, Biofiction, which is a really cool uh, sort of intersection of like medical engineering and science fiction that mm-hmm. played in Vienna and Austria. And the film's been uh, largely uh, successful in that sort of interesting intersection of science and art. Um, Imagine Science Films, which is a wonderful organization based in New York, has an online publication called Labocine, for example. We were lucky enough to be featured there. Um, so it's been really fun to like both you know, connect with film-going audiences, but also like people interested in the medical sciences. Yeah, this is a kind of medical... Uh, I don't want to, maybe horror is the wrong word, but it feels horrific. Um, off the mic a little bit, we, we talked about how the reaction to this film ranges based on who is seeing it, especially in terms of age. Just to give an idea, this film follows a uh, young woman visiting her grandmother who has gone through this sort of prosthesis process in order to extend her life to an incredible amount, uh, reaching almost 200 years old. It's referenced in the film. And uh, it all takes place in this hospital as they... You know, have as she has this interaction and talks, you know, with a nurse and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's basically asking the question of when you no longer have your body, but you are still conscious, how much of you is still you? And it's that kind of horrifying prospect that I think was really, really the 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 kernel of the whole thing. So uh, you mentioned in introducing the film that this was inspired by your own medical uh, troubles and own medical experience. Can you talk a little bit? About about that certainly and that's exactly right um so felix my co-writer and our cinematographer uh we came up with this idea when we were talking about um just the experience that i was undergoing uh i was getting diagnosed with crohn's disease um which is a chronic illness obviously not terminal i'm fine um but it just meant that i had to come to terms with what it meant to be sick forever um and i think anyone close to chronic illness or who has chronic illness knows that the sort of central question is uh, what are you willing to give up for your health um and for me that sacrifice is constant but it's primarily financial you know the insane costs of healthcare in our society right um expensive treatment frequent doctor visits uh i'm sacrificing all the time for my health but that sacrifice you know comes in a certain form and so instead i imagined a world uh where that sacrifice that concept of sacrifice for health a, a system like ours that demands that people make sacrifices for their health what would that look like pushed to its absurd extremes mm-hmm. um and you know what would that then look like if you could say give up parts of your body to live longer uh would you give up everything to live much longer right. and would like you said would you still be you um and you know out of that 
sort of emerged two simultaneous desires we wanted to explore. One was this like sort of ship of Theseus mm-hmm. idea that you mentioned, you know, if you kind of take pieces, of, you know, the ship of Theseus, of course, is if you have a ship and you replace the mast and with a new mast, then you replace the keel with a new keel and you replace, you know, all the panels with new panels. And at what point is it not the original ship anymore? Um, and so there was that question, of course. And it was also uh, the sort of pure cinematic question of like through Montage, could we create an audience relationship with an, an inanimate object? Yeah. The, what I really found interesting was when it goes, when it comes to the prosthesis that people in this world are able to use, um, it's, it's not even human looking. Uh, you, you made the choice, the film opens up on the shot of a teddy bear in a in a uh, in a wheelchair being wheeled around they're hol- you know holding the hand of of a loved one and a doctor and um even the grandmother character herself is a box with a webcam on top of it so i think that alienation was really interesting and speaks to that theme of um you know loss of body and loss of that can you tell me uh how you came to that and said we're not going to do something that looks human it needs to be something removed from that yeah and part of that was driven by our desire to really push this into absurdity where you know if you're forcing both the characters and the audience to treat a box like literally just a box on a bed like it's a person then you're you're putting the question that the movie asks its characters which is is this a person to the audience in its most explicit way i think if we had made that character humanoid or even like have some sort of human feature it's so much easier to just answer the question well yeah there is a person there but maybe it's you know compromised in some way right i think that you know i think about sometimes we considered putting a vegetable on the bed instead and it's like you literalize that metaphor of the vegetable Mm -hmm. but i think even that also is you're, you're kind of giving the answer to the question and I don't have the answer to that question I don't know when you stop being you uh, and there are sequences in the film where we kind of show the audience Miriam the grandmother's perspective and the degree to which that is or is not consciousness is not clear to me um, and if it is clear to the audience that's something the audience is bringing to the movie and not something we're providing yeah that's that's what I really like about it is that there's a there's a chance for you to ask yourself a lot of these questions and and you're right you do not give a clear answer you are simply showing the situation and then people have to bring their own ideas to it you know when when it comes to the uh the range of ages who are seeing it you, you mentioned that um older audiences tend to find it a little bit more comical they find it a little bit more dark satire in a sense because they might be going through these questions themselves as people get on in age they're visiting the hospital perhaps more they're dealing with the breakdown of their own bodies so this is like to them this is daily life they're like yeah i get this metaphor whereas someone like myself i'm horrified at the prospect of having to spend so much time working on my body maybe like i have to have a hip replaced someday or even something as minor as dental work like i've that's always freaked me out so um did you did you intend for that range of responses or uh did you want it to be more specifically scary or darkly comical yeah i think one of the big lessons we learned with this film is that you really cannot plan for a tone and then expect that tone to carry through to the end the audience has to inform that and when we first wrote and conceived of the film it was a black comedy it was mm-hmm. we thought it was you know writing the script 
I was cracking up. I thought like it was the funniest thing in the world that there's a like person talking to a box that just yeah. read to me as like the silliest thing imaginable. And it was really, really funny. And it was only once we got into rehearsal that, you know, all of a sudden our lead, uh, who's a wonderful actress, uh, unfortunately couldn't be here because she lives in Australia. Her name's Jess. Um, and uh, Jessica Lara Bentley. And Jess you know, is crying in rehearsal and I'm like, Oh no, it's a drama. <laughs> yeah. It, it takes that turn. It's right. um, and even the way it's shot is, uh, it's, it's kind of cold. Yes. Um, there's, there's a certain, um, not to use the, the typical film student answer, but it's Kubrickian in mm. a lot of ways. Like there, there's just a lot of like, we're going to have this camera. We're just going to move around. We're going to just watch. And you also at some points just leave it on certain focuses. So you've got at one point the, um, the nurse has uh, removed the webcam and you know the prosthesis as it's as it's referred to and uh, puts it in a medical bag throws it away and uh, moves out of frame and you just kind of leave it there because I my reading was that you want you maybe wanted folks to be like remember this is a person part of a person's body technically but we're so removed from it because it's to our eyes, a webcam. It's not really an organic thing. Um, when it came to showing the organic versus the inorganic, um, was that something you were considering? Yeah, totally. And that sort of juxtaposition you just described, where like we have this box with a webcam on it, and then when you remove the webcam, like both of those things are silly. The webcam doesn't make anything more or less human. It's a fucking webcam. Yeah. You know, it's like right. so you remove that webcam. Is that really different? Like, was she really seeing? And so with this juxt- with, with the to your question about organic versus inorganic, the style of the filmmaking, which, like you said, was very restrained and Kubrickian, so thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that was driven by just a desire not to introduce too much subjectivity into the movie. I think in a movie that is so much about what the audience brings to this central question we're asking, it was important to us that we allow the film to give the audience that room to think about it. And if you know you are endowing the movie with the character's visual perspectives and giving it that sort of organic feel, whether you're literally shooting handheld or even just like shooting POV more often or whatever it is, then I think that in some ways you're going to, you're going to compromise the ability of the film to ask its question honestly without force feeding the audience an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, it's funny that moment that you specifically referenced was one where we, that was you know a, a real one but we actually digitally extended the length that we hold on the box in the oh, bed okay. so there are some like frames that repeat there because I just really wanted to sit there with that box because that que- that is the moment where you as the audience member like is this a person and yeah. if it is then this is really sad did we just remove someone's eyes exactly you know? but if it's not a person then that is just a box on a bed and that's the first time you see just a box and so I think that's you know really where things crystallize yeah do you think this is uh, going towards a future? Yeah, go ahead. It's okay. We have the technology. <laughs> <laughs> With those votes. So when it comes to um, the, uh, the... Let me, let me yeah, re- re- regather here. Because this was, do you think this is the future? Do you think this is your your? Because sci-fi is both de- descriptive of the present, but also can be prescriptive of a future and uh, dealing with ideas that we are looking at now, but also down the road as things advance. Do you feel that this is a reality? 
That's a great question. Um, I don't love this term, but I will use it. Uh, I think the film is a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if anyone's paying attention to politics right now, in the Democratic debates last week, we have conversations about health care all the time where we talk about how what we really have in this country is a disease care system and not a health care system. We are treating symptoms and not treating people. And I think that is what the seed for this movie was. It was my own experience getting diagnosed where, of course, I've had wonderful medical providers, but more often than not, especially by the system as a whole, feel like I'm treated as a collection of symptoms, a collection of problems that can be solved, whether through prosthetics or surgery or whatever it is, rather than a person with a condition of some kind. And so do I think this is the future? I really hope not. Uh, And I hope that you know, when, what, to what, like the 10 people that have seen this movie <laughs> can maybe take away from it this idea that, you know, we don't have to go there. This is an absurd future, but it is certainly a future that is not impossible. We are already dehumanizing. Healthcare is so dehumanizing, and we're just literalizing that metaphor, but it's happening all the time. I mean, if you have a patient who is in some ways, you know, differently able to the point where they can't speak or can't see or can't hear or whatever, then they're going to be treated like they're an inanimate object. Mm. So I think the question is less about, like, how do we avoid this future? And it's just how do we stop doing this in the present? Right. Do you feel that it's that kind of idea of um, instead of being when, when we see someone who cannot see, cannot hear, cannot speak, um, they're referred to as just you're blind, you're deaf, you're mute. Or in the in the even more classical term for mute, you're dumb, mm-hmm. which is um, in a sense accurate, but coldly so, and really not that that thinking of them as a person with blindness, a person with deafness, a person with the inability to speak. So I, th- this is what really scared me. I'm terrified of the medical world already. Uh, my my mom was a nurse, and I but I am horrified of blood. I can barely get blood drawn um, without going into a panic like. I had, um, you know, my wisdom teeth removed. And before they could even get the, uh, the, they were just going to knock me out. I was like, before they could even get it, I was like shaking and shivering. And the poor nurse was just like, oh, are you cold? And put a blanket on me. And then I'm shivering <laughs> underneath that. So um, in, in your experiences as a person with Crohn's disease, going through the medical system, you've put a lot of it on, on film here. You've put a lot of it in the picture. But, um, you know, why... Why do you think this is the way it is? I, you've said it's a it's a disease care system, not a health care system. What is it about us as people that are so comfortable with treating um, the sick or the differently abled that way? Yeah, uh, I was going to say I don't want to get too political, but of course I want to get political. That's fine. Um, Let's do that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the fundamental answer to that is because our healthcare system is motivated by profit and not by a desire to help people. Um, and in so many ways, the more symptoms you can both create and perpetuate and then treat for very expensive means, the more lucrative a patient represents to the system. For providers, and again, my partner is also a nurse, uh, and you know, to me represents like a vision of what like ethical and compassionate care could look like. I think that the reason that care is so hard to find is because the people who want to provide it are not able to. And so... Uh, I mean, the reason we're at where we're at is because of capitalism. Uh, it's you know. Well, yeah, no. The idea of having to take care of someone for uh, a price is is 
unnerving, and it sh- or at least it should be unnerving. Some people simply accept this as as a basic reality, and I know people within the medical field are so stuck in that loop where they are both expected to be caretakers and people who are expected to be on their feet for hun- you know hours and hours and hours at a time doing the things to just help people be at least somewhat comfortable and somewhat not in pain but they are also uh stuck underneath people who don't they're they're in the healthcare business they're not in healthcare. yeah and i don't want to be so idealistic to imagine that you know there is never going to be a situation where you have to make sacrifices for your health health fundamentally is a question of sacrifices sure you know when i choose to eat like oatmeal for breakfast versus like an egg and cheese sandwich like i'm making a health decision and i'm i'm you know making sacrifices if i choose one or the other um like that is inherent to what it means to be alive whether or not we're conscious of those decisions i think what i am railing against here is a system that demands that those sacrifices are always so costly and so extreme and if we can provide health care in a more compassionate and equitable way I think that the question of what are you willing to give up for your health which is the central question of the film Mm -hmm. can become a question about can instead be framed as what are you willing to sorry can I take that again yeah sure go ahead the question of what are you willing to give up for your health which is the central question of the film in a more equitable and just world instead becomes a question of what does being healthy mean to you Mm-hmm. Does being healthy mean a life without pain? Does it mean a life, you know, free of whatever illnesses or ailments might uh, ail you? Yeah. Um, I don't know. And for everyone, it's different. But right now, that's not the case. Right now, if you have a set of symptoms or a disease or any sort of diagnosis, you are treated in a very specific way. And very, a very small part of that is, you know, being asked what does it mean to be healthy? And, if, and the question in the film is, you know, for a character who no longer has any part of her body, whose, own, whose consciousness is tenuous at best, what does it mean to be healthy? Yeah. You know, if, if health is just the absence of symptoms, well, you can strip every part of a person away and they don't have any symptoms. Are they healthy? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's the freaky part about it. And, uh, and the film, some of her parts illustrates that beautifully. I think it's a incredibly well thought out clearly. Um, and it's so, it's so much coming from a place of genuine understanding because you have been in that world. You're, you're bringing this experience and putting it on the screen. Um, and I I think science fiction is a great place to ask these big questions. Uh, going forward, do you want to keep working in science fiction? Are you, are you feeling that this is your genre? Do you want to maybe try a little bit of everything? Um, I've always loved science fiction. Uh, I grew up on the twilight zone. I grew up, this is totally twilight zone. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, and so the genre means a ton to me, uh, and I do fundamentally believe that genre in general, not just science fiction, is one of our most powerful tools to explore the issues that society is dealing with now. Um, at the same time, I love all types of movies. Um, I really love horror. I love, excuse me, I love fantasy. I love drama. I love comedy. I love it all. Mm-hmm. And most of my films, especially my longer films, uh, going forward I expect will really sort of just play with genre and won't be married to any specific genre I feel like we're in kind of a renaissance of that um, genre is is the the mode of the day Even, like the highest grossing films of the year are genre films like those, every superhero movie is a genre film it's technically science fiction or fantasy however you want to put it uh, which is 
still um, at times a genre that is uh, to, to use a term ghettoized. You know, people still look at it as like, oh, well, this is like this thing. It's I mean, not even not, even I fell victim to that just then. You know, when I say the words play with genre, I'm kind of shying away from the notion of like calling it a genre film or whatever. Yeah. Like, I, th- I find, you know, there is that ghettoization of genre when we talk about it that way. We're like, this film employs genre tropes or whatever. It's like, no, it's a genre it's film. A genre film. Yeah. Don't be afraid of that. Exactly. That's a, it's a good thing to be. Genre films are my favorite films. I feel exactly the same. Um, there, was, there was something as well with it, uh, with what you were doing that I felt fell into the world of uh, a little bit of body horror. Mm. And obviously we've been talking about the, the removal of the body and this sort of thing. And while body horror is typically seen as this very 80s, uh, early 90s thing of like, it has to be especially gross you know it's it's very much goo and and you know lost limbs everything like that it's very much that's the basis of it i feel like you're engaged with the same ideas of body horror but in such a clean and cold and calculated way that it feels like a new twist on it um are you a body horror person i am a body horror person i also love that description of the film i've never really articulated it as like clinical body horror Mm -hmm. but it really it is exactly that um Cronenberg's Videodrome is is like one of my biggest inspirations um, and all of Cronenberg's work but uh, I think that notion that you were just describing of like the sort of slime of body yeah. horror is a texture I really love, a cinematic texture I love, and one I'd love to employ. But for this film, I mean, the medical environment, especially one which has dehumanized people so effectively as mm-hmm. we have in this movie, can't have any bodily fluids. You know, like the the sort of grossness of body horror needed to be absent from this movie, and yet those questions of like, uh, you know, there's some incredible foundational writing on body horror, but like mm-hmm. the body without organs. Um, and I'm forgetting the author, so you can just cut this piece. But wonderful piece of film writing, and is so much about the politics of the body. And this movie is engaging with all of those themes. Uh, so if it's horrific to you, which it seems like it was for you, it was awesome. Uh, yeah, I was having reactions to this that reminded me of the film uh, Eyes Without a Face, which um, is is very medical, and it, while it still well it goes on the grossness side because that was its transgression, uh, it seems like this this film uh some of her parts is transgressing in a much more cerebral way and really uh very grounded in a certain level of reality that those other films shucked for the purpose of uh because being grounded was the thing so they were like all right we're going to be not grounded we're going to turn jeff goldblum into a into a fly we're going to remove someone's face we're going to do these uh these really horrific things but now it seems like you can swing the pendulum the other way. It's like, okay, we've seen how that happens. What happens when it's so much so much cleaner and so much more procedural and so much more tangible? Like, I don't know. At the end of some of her parts, I thought to myself, shit, I could be just have my consciousness transferred into a box. Like, that is a world I can envision for myself. I'm not going to turn into a fly, probably, but could my consciousness be placed in a sort of exoskeleton or something like that? Maybe. That seems like a world that people like um, Elon Musk envision. Like he's like he's like, yeah, we're all brains in jars anyway. So. Yeah, this is desirable to some people. And you know, in this this question about clinical body horror, which I'm not going to use as the archetype yeah, of genre, um, I think. You know, the film for us, one of the compromises we had to make was in choosing to go that route, we lose out on some of the affect of body horror. You know, we don't get to like 
gross out the audience mm-hmm. or like the sort of extreme human emotion that can go into the viscera of body horror. Sure. We're not showing the movie is so clinical that in some ways, you know, it, it, like my other work is much more emotional. Uh, like, I'm comfortable calling this film heartless because I think it literally is. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think there, that's abs- absolutely true. But that means that we're in some ways compromising the ability of the audience to emotionally engage. And I think, you know, you called the film cerebral just now. Um, it is. And that was a conscious choice. Uh, I think more than anything else for my next film, I want to make a film with a lot of heart, just okay. partially just to prove to myself that I can. Sure. Um, but I think also it's important to me that I've made my cautionary tale. I want to make, an optimistic story about what it means for the future to be a good thing. <laughs> Great. Uh, the film is some of her parts. Uh, Abby Seidel, thank you so much for, for joining me. A great, absolutely great short, great picture. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Stephen, the film is Once Upon a River. Uh, you are the editor of this Indeed. film. And you are an editor by trade, yes? Yeah, I'm a commercials editor by trade. And then I've just gotten to um, features and shorts over the past couple of years. But uh, my day job that I go back to every day, nine to five, is commercials. And you're cutting for, like, pretty big companies? Like, you don't have to name them necessarily. No, that's okay. You know, like, I work for a tabletop food production company, so any big fast food thing you've seen on TV, I probably have dabbled in editing it. Are you serious? Yeah. So, like, when I'm watching that commercial for the, like, maybe the Impossible Burger, you might have had your hand. Did you edit that? Not the Impossible Burger specifically, but, you know. You've cut some burger stuff. We are doing some BK next week, so. Oh, no way. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of cool, but. But after you've seen burgers flip in slow motion for like, yeah. I don't know, six years, you're like, where's the narrative? Yeah. <laughs> I, what, what's my motivation here? Yeah. Uh, so ability. Absolutely. <laughs> Editing is, um, I, I've gotten to talk to one other editor at this film fest very so cool. far. And, and I don't get to talk to a lot of people who are just editors by trade because it's a very specific subset of person that wants to build film in that world uh all the attention usually goes to writers and directors because they're the ones with the that are considered building the story but really editors are putting together that final vision they might have a you know there's a script you're working with there's you might have some input from the director input from whoever producers and all that kind of stuff but really the editor is the last line of this is what the film is literally going to look like in terms of it is sequenced this way we're going to do these sorts of things so uh what originally got you into the world of editing what originally got me into the world of editing? Well, I wanted to be a director of photography originally, and mm-hmm. after spending two years on set as like a, an AC, I was like, I can't do this. Like, I don't yeah. like being bossed around by yeah. the DP and the producers and the director and da-da-da, and the hours you're working, 18, 20-hour days sometimes, well, they pay Absolutely. you overtime, but it's like exhausting. And, you know, I, I'd always been cutting my own stuff since college, and I was like, you know what, if I'm going to be working 18, 20-hour days, better in like a big comfortable chair ordering takeout than, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, the, you know, as far as like the act, what the actual... Uh, what it turns out to be, like what your job actually turns out to be. Because you know, you're in college and stuff, you're like, what does it mean when I'm an architect? What does it mean to be an actual this or that or the other? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it can be disheartening when you actually get into the field and you're like, oh, maybe I should change my mind. And like kind of changing majors in college, I was just like, you know, I think I think editing is what I like to do. And for some reason, like the, the, the technical aspect of it to me seems, it's like works with my like rational mind. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very creative thing, of course, but it's also for me kind of like a, 
hate to say it's so cliche to say like like putting pieces of a puzzle together sure because it really is i mean if you really want to look at like what tools you're using in like an editing system like there's literally a tool called snap like you can snap clips together and i was like yeah it's kind of like a puzzle but i mean i wouldn't say like i would say that anybody can edit but that doesn't mean everybody's a good editor and and that's not like just toot my own horn that's really just like you know people who can make assemblies and stuff like i actually was talking to some people last night and i was saying you know any director that can actually dabble in editing i respect them because i respect them more per se because you know if i'm not doing something or something's coming out they can't explain what they want out of their film they may just take it away from me for like five minutes mess around there for a couple days and give it back to me like kind of more like this world and then i'll polish it up so for me it's not just like jumping on the end of the jumping on the end of the production and just kind of giving them my whole thing it's more like i would say it's a you know the film is made in the cutting room absolutely basically like you can't like uh another analogy i like to use is uh, I see some directors kind of look at editing like dropping off their laundry, you know, where it's like, okay, I'm going to give this to my editor. He's going to do it and give me back a film that's made. And it's going to be exactly what I wanted. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you can't, you have to be participatory as the director and the edit. You like, sure. well, you just, you don't have to sit in the whole time the assembly's happening. But once the first edit's done, you should be sitting in there every time to like make sure that what you're, what you want is happening and not mm-hmm. just like, oh, I hope the editor's good. Right. Um, I'm going to hone in on the term, the cutting room floor, because okay. let's, let's I knew about, you were going to bring it up. Because, <laughs> well, I mean, the barrier to, for entry has changed so much. Of course. Um, you said that anybody can be an editor, mm-hmm. and it's it's gotten remarkably easy. Uh, do you use Premiere Pro? Or? Yeah. Okay. And this film was cut on Premiere Pro, yeah. Okay. And I, I love that as an editing suite, because um, I, I went to journalism school. Mm-hmm. So it, there's a little bit of like, be, being in journalism is like being a filmmaker and you have to do everything yourself but it's so you know obviously storytelling yeah, 101 storytelling. really and uh, the skills are all very similar but uh, it, the the remarkable ease of getting at least the the skill of editing down in terms of the the physical like I'm going to move this clip over right. here do that kind of stuff has become remarkably easy you can probably learn the absolute basics and cut together video in about I'd say a week I would even I would even argue as quick as a day. Yeah, you know, once you say here's your bin, here's your sequence, put the stuff in you like, yeah. take the stuff out you don't like. I would argue that you could be chopping away on at the end of your first day. Yeah, I like that. And, and so, but there's the the artistry of it, which is really fun. Um, an example I've used and other people have used a lot for the importance of an editor is Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. and uh, his longtime editor who who passed away, Sally Menke, who was able to take this guy's kind of wild vision and very uh, very kind of in, insane story ideas and make them very like tight and coherent mm-hmm. and you can even see how much things changed after she passed away and she was no longer you know she wasn't editing his films right things got much longer things got a little bit sloppier that yeah. sort of thing so as an as an editor when um you get into a room with a director how how forceful do you like to get uh i'll stand my ground yeah um if i'm you know i have a i went to school for film theory not literally filmmaking so mm-hmm. You know, when I when I'm watching a film, I kind of feel like when a cue is working, I know that a cue is working. If I feel like emotions are working, or shots, or shot length, or you know, like when a director's saying "cut now," and I'm like, "Well, you shouldn't cut on a blink." That's like rule one hundred and one of editing. Like, mm-hmm. don't cut on blinks. And I see it. I mean, I see it all the time. And, and 
films that are out there and festivals and stuff Absolutely. on TV is the worst offender of like <laughs> continuity for Cause they're cutting. just like, fuck it. We got to, we uh, shows on Monday. Like, yeah, I, exactly. So, you know, in term in terms of that kind of thing, I, I just think like, um, yeah, I, it's, it's important. It's important to know what you're, you're getting yourself into, but you know, at the end of the day, like the director is the director and I'm not going to fall on my sword and ruin a relationship with the director because I don't like a shot. I mean, I, I have to say like, even on this film and I'm, this isn't throwing the director under the bus. She's a sweetheart and she's great to work with. And she's been really good at communicating with me and listening to my ideas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some, one, one, one point she was like, okay, I really want this shot. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know if it adds anything to the story, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, look, it's a beautiful shot and I'm very effect, a lot of affection for it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to leave it in. And I was like, you know what? There's nothing wrong with this shot. It's a it's a beautiful shot. It's pretty. I mean, honestly, like pretty shots is where the movie starts, right? Like I'm going to put in all the pretty shots, and then we're going to work the story out from there, kind of in a way. Because like, yeah. even if your film lacks substance, at least you're putting in all the pretty shots. Like <laughs> I I can't stand when people put in shots that are either one out of focus or they bounce back and forth between focus and out of focus. Yeah, it's like as an editor in a commercial world, I could never show a shot that was out of focus because if a client liked it, then it's never going to leave the cut. And then I have to sit and like someone says, well, can we sharpen this? And it's like, no, no, you can't sharpen. Out of focus is out of focus and people don't understand that. So there are some things like little tiny edit things that like get on my nerves, but I'm very specific and I learned a very specific way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I watch a lot of movies at the sound off. I know that sounds so pretentious, but like, (laughs) you know, in my, in my day job, I I edit, but then in the background behind me, we usually put on some movies, HBO, Netflix, whatever. And just, you know, just to have something visual going in the background. And I watch films all the time and I'm like, you know, when you have like 87 edits in a 60 seconds, you're just like, wow. Yeah. You can like the sound smooths over editing so hard that you actually can get away with a lot well i mean even look at uh bohemian rhapsody which which <laughs> best it, editing yeah has <laughs> has been that's a notorious oscar moment now at least for like i would say the kind of hardcore people who are really paying attention uh because um that that whole scene was like i actually i remember watching it and i felt kind of sick i got super disoriented um and i was just like oh my god like how is this how are we smoothing this over into what is going to be like a massive film release and i think you're right the the sound kind of can hide so much how much like in a movie can be covered over and band-aided well you know really in terms of like oscars editing you know the shame about that is uh i feel like the only movies that win oscars for editing are the ones where you can like see the editing right because they the the irony is that in a good film you won't notice the edits in a bad film you'll notice the edits like if you're watching something and it cuts to the other person's like angle you're like wait 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 like why i was like fine to like continue watching that other angle or if there's too much back and forth like television editing is again it goes back to this whole thing of like being the worst offender because like i'm talking you're talking i'm talking you're talking it's just cut 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 there's not in films for instance like eighth grade like that film lingers on the main character like even when the dad's talking, it very rarely cuts back to the dad and it's letting it linger on the emotions of that one character. And editors struggle to really like fight the urge to cut due to cutaways and cut back. And like, you know, cinema is, is really kind of the art of restraint. Mm -hmm. And I think 
you know, I mean, is my have any of the films I worked on considered cinema? I don't know, but the films I like, you know, Kubrick and Tarkovsky and yeah. and PTA and you know, there's always people who show incredible restraint, and I think that's really important especially, in filmmaking. Yeah, especially Tarkovsky. Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember the first. I, I remember the first time I saw like Solaris and Stalker. I was just like. Fuck, dude! Like, <laughs> oh my god! Like, especially Solaris, you've got the whole sequence just like going through the city. Like, you're just and then like, does it really have any bearing on what's happening? Kind of, but also no. And it's all so interesting, and you're lingering on this, and you're just going through and experiencing I mean, something. Even a more nuanced example: Gaspar Noé's climax. Yeah, I mean that yeah. film has very little cutting in it, and the thing that's great about it is like you're along for the ride. Like, there's no cutting away from something that might be disorienting or make you like your stomach turn or something that offends you like you're along for the ride the whole time and it kind of it, i remember walking out of the theater after seeing that movie and was like oh man i have like something in my chest like some anxiety going on and i'm like yeah. cool i'm <laughs> I, I had an experience yeah and for me whether your movie's good bad or whatever indifferent if i walked out of your movie feeling something even for five seconds i think that's an accomplishment yeah absolutely as an editor you know there's there's this idea of rules you said you studied film theory mm -hmm. so you've got this kind of maybe uh, this might be saying too much or not representing you correctly <laughs> but it's uh maybe a more cerebral look at film yeah you have to you're seeing kind of the uh how the sausage is made in a way yeah it's more like the idea can. behind the film not yeah. necessarily anything to do with the production or anything yeah. like that it's, it's more like you're kind of metagame thinking on yeah a, it's on a like this level. this object is a metaphor for this blah 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 and yeah. it's like okay I mean, i've had enough of that yeah <laughs> How'd you get out of film school? Like, can I just make something? Yeah, for once. Um, <laughs> as an editor, I've, I've never gotten the chance to ask an editor about uh, one of my favorite films, okay. Breathless. Ooh, okay. Where, yeah, French which is, New Wave. Yeah, that took me a lot of time to get into. The first time I watched it, I hated it. I was like, yeah, what? It, this is bullshit. Jump cuts are jarring, especially in a narrative sense. You know, um, Godard is like infamous French New Wave filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And jump cuts, I mean, it was just his way, I think, of being like, we don't need all this filler. Like it's it's just micro time jumps if you really want to consider that. And films do that all the time, and you may not even realize it. That's true. You know, like but it's just these are very obvious. Like when you're seeing an actor do something, and then literally he's just ten feet away doing something different. I mean, jump cuts are getting are being have been used a lot more in modern filmmaking, and you know, thank you can thank Godard for that. And Breathless, mm -hmm. I mean, Breathless is one of my favorite films in film okay. school, not for nothing. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So and so does that. Uh did it hurt you a little bit like watching it and being like ah oh, this is following such this is so against the quote-unquote rules because uh, that, that's how I felt because I did not see it until I was in college I feel like a lot of people suddenly mm -hmm. get to go dart in college uh, because he's a very I, I think he's a great entry into art film and, and of to course. This, you know that kind of world but it was so like I don't care about the rules I just want to capture a feeling and an idea if anything it's liberation it know, really was it's liberation yeah. from the rules and you, you think about any kind of experimental film you know films that just disregard expectations i mean look at michael hanukkah films mm -hmm. like you know funny games every step of the way Jeez. he's telling the audience like whatever you expected sorry i'm not gonna let you have it and you know that's the kind those are the kinds of films where you know people notice those films because they are out of the ordinary and not just because they're out of the ordinary they're saying something they're making a remark on filmmaking and the whole ideology behind it yeah, uh, let's uh, we'll pull out a little bit of the rabbit hole there. As much as I love talking about <laughs> okay. it, because that is that is my favorite thing to talk about. Um, is this your first time at Adirondack Film Festival? It is. Yes. Yeah. Same here. I'm. I, um, I'm never been to New York. 
never oh. been to New York State or New York City. Okay. So this has been an interesting experience. How are you enjoying Glens Falls? Glens Falls is great, actually. I appreciate the small townness. So I live in New York City in yeah. Brooklyn. So it's always nice for me to escape for a weekend or a couple of days, see the leaves change. Um, you know, it's it's just nice to get out of out into nature after being in like this urban concrete jungle. Yeah. <laughs> And you yeah. li- you live in downtown Chicago, probably. Yeah, yeah. I live I live in an area called Uptown, uh, which is formal, kind of formally still a little bit the red light district. Okay. Uh, so it's an interesting place. It's a very easy place to get crack. Uh, it's, <laughs> uh, but I, I, but everybody who lives there is awesome. Uh, cool. But it, yeah, I really like it here. What what has been your favorite part about being at this at this film festival? Because I'll throw this out there: uh, people of this town are showing out for this. I'm I'm really shocked. Uh, because not only do you have so many of the filmmakers in attendance, but pretty much every screening I've gone to, that's pretty full of people. Yeah, yeah. We we screened yesterday and ours was full. Um, and you know, I'm really appreciative of the the people who came out to see the film. And you know, even today, like the streets are mu- are so busy. Like it's a Saturday downtown Glen Glens Falls. And uh, I'm like, man, this is exciting. I mean, you know, I very rarely go to the film festivals myself. You know, as as the editor, it's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, though the director invites me to pretty much every one. She's like, oh, you want to come here? Here, I'm like, I don't have the time or the money to be flying around the country for 30 film festivals. I mean, exactly. I mean, Harul is in Italy right now, and one of the producers is in um, Kansas. Mm-hmm. So like, right now we're spread out. You know, trying to attend all these festivals, and it's been really awesome that we got into them. Yeah, and Harul mentioned that uh, this film is, is screening at Cifra right now at Chicago International mm-hmm. Film Festival, yep. which I, I had a lot of people say to me, like, uh, you're going to miss SIF? You're not going to Chicago International Film Festival? <laughs> Should this be your bag? I, I, the thing was that, like, um, I kind of have a little bit of contempt for these for really big film festivals because mm-hmm. I feel like you don't get any sort of intimacy um, and you don't you don't get to really enjoy the conversation. Whereas here, what I've noticed is that they don't really do Q and A's. No, they don't. They encourage the filmmakers to set up a time and place for the audience to meet the filmmaker and just chat at a restaurant, a bar. Like you know, the the filmmaker decides whether it's in the lobby or whatever. Yeah. But you know, it's and I've I've really enjoyed that too. You know, people will come up and talk to me about the film and uh, whether it's five minutes or five seconds it's still nice that people care enough to ask yeah and i i don't know about you i hate q a's people don't like to get put on the spot no and and this is coming from someone who literally talks to filmmakers <laughs> like all the time and i've done q a's and i'm always flattered because you know it's like an opportunity i'm going to put on like a shirt and tie and look professional even though i kind of hate that um but it's it's so unnecessarily formal and um, I, I don't really get it. I really do like this whole thing that they've, they've set up here where you can just talk to them for five minutes, you know, yeah. have, a, have a conversation with the filmmaker. Uh, so that's that's really, really cool. Um, so you do commercials mainly for a living. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, film on the side for for however, however many uh, films you get to make a year. Yeah. How, how often are you getting to work on films? Um, you know, I would say uh, kind of more and more recently, like I've been doing a lot more shorts lately. Uh, you know, I'm just wrapping up a short right now. I worked with the Harul on a short last year called mm-hmm. uh, As They Slept, uh, starring Maya Hawk. Uh, and I think that's actually in festivals now the same time as this, this film. Um, and, you know, for me, it's like just kind of building my, my cred in the feature world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, for me, I have the luxury of taking on only work that I like because it's not my bread and butter. So, like, I can turn down things that maybe I'm not as interested in or I think sure. may take too much time. So I, I feel very fortunate for that, um, where I feel like I know a lot of 
I know a handful of independent editors who are like, I have to take this because I need to get paid. Yeah. And eventually your IMDb starts looking like people are scratching their head when they're trying to hire you because they're like, this film's good. Bad, 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 good, 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 bad, 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 bad. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, no offense, it's not the editor's fault necessarily. You know, you can never know why a film is successful yeah, it or might not. might not be the editor. So you can't critique anything. the editor, yeah. but sometimes the editor may take the fall or the director, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so you'd rather just stick to projects that overall kind of come out pretty good. Yeah, that you feel confident about, that you feel good about. Um, so just to wrap it up here, uh, th- this has been really fun talking about, like, film theory and editing well, and stuff um what do you have any advice for someone who would have to who wants to get into editing uh where to start other than maybe go to film school but if, if say say they can't go to film school where do you start learning the craft um i would say for any new editor coming into the field just make stuff meet everybody you can take on everything you can and just cut because that's what, what it's going to be i mean cut your own things talk to anybody go out and shoot if you have a dslr go out and shoot something and then cut something together i mean you don't have to put everything out and display to the world like it's just about your craft and mm. i was fortunate that i got to you know uh cut my teeth doing commercials um which actually in a weird way has influenced the way i cut any everything features and stuff because like there is like this philosophy that i go by and this is a piece of advice i would give to any editor is there's three ways to look at editing is the micro so the literally shot to shot like what that edit is then there's the scene um you know how does that how do the shots work in that scene and then there's the big picture and i think often people get too caught up looking at like the shot to shot and i think like you have to look at all three of those things in order to see if that literal join is working okay well now i'm gonna bring that to my viewing experience and be like all right this is how i I just it's editing is something i've always wanted to understand fully uh, you know which i may never me too (laughs) (laughs) that's a dream uh steven lambiasi thank you so much man i really thanks man i really appreciate being here